Hey everybody and welcome back to Practice Makes Faithful. I'm Ben Patterson, joined as always by Paul Hugobart. Yes, good morning Ben. At uh, yes. the end of this, uh, well it's not the end of Thanksgiving week, it's the beginning of the first week after Thanksgiving. Yep. We're back after a week off last week. Yep. How was your Thanksgiving week, Paul? It was it was good. We uh, we got to go down and visit my parents, spend a little bit of time cool. there. You know, for November they live on the northern Gulf Coast. Okay. And so uh, so the weather was actually quite nice for November. Awesome. We actually had a day where we got to go to the beach, and uh, the, though the water was quite chilly, you know, mm -hmm. so where they live, there's this state park and there's this jetty that goes out into the Gulf. And uh, my two boys love to snorkel. Well, one of them decided it was too cold. The other one decided. You know, we had this opportunity right in front of us, so we had to go do it. And with the water temperature about 63 degrees, which I'm telling you, I know it doesn't sound that cold. You think, you know, air temperature is 60, 63 degrees. You think, oh, how lovely. When the water temperature is 63 degrees, it feels like ice. And so uh, we snorkeled all the way to the end of the jetty and back, and he was an absolute champ, and I was an absolute chump. Uh, you know, having to get out of the water at times and stand on a rock to try to warm up just for a minute. And then, of course, experiencing that take your breath away moment every time I got back in and would continue oh, yeah. uh, the snorkeling trip with him. Whew. We had a great time. It was fun. It's uh, always, that sounds rough. Yeah, it was, it was rough, man. <laughs> it was rough. You know, I'm to that point where, uh, you know, we're doing difficult things even when the payoff is, is good. It can sometimes be a challenge, especially that kind of thing. And so, um, but, uh, but no, it was worth it. You know, the adventure of me enjoyed it and it was great watching to see um, you know, to see my, my kid be such an adventurer and be such a champ um, and, and to see his dad wade through it and get to kind of, you know, pick on me a little bit here and there. No, it was, it was a good time. I mean, all over a good time. Just great to be with my folks. Great to celebrate Thanksgiving. Great to think and reflect um, about those things that we really do have to be grateful for. You know, and it really is in the midst of you know, sometimes struggle, frustration, disappointment, uh, even sometimes negativity, you know, certainly in this world, there's so much negativity. When you pause and you take really, for, for me, it was an entire week mm -hmm. of contemplating those things I'm thankful for. It's amazing how that just roots you and grounds you again, um, where you may have been adrift and mm -hmm. affected mm -hmm. by the winds, you know, uh, that, that blow, you know, in a sense. And um, you know, so much of that then comes back to obviously being grateful to God as the giver of every good yeah. gift, as James yeah. tells us. And so, you know, that just it's it's a rich week altogether. Um, that contemplation, certainly, but then also just getting to getting to be with family, getting mm -hmm. to spend some time mm -hmm. uh, at the beach was you know was nice altogether. So, how, how about yours? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That was good. I was, it was really good. I was local here. Um, my brother came to town yeah. from uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And uh, so that was really good, just getting to be with him and his family, get to be with my niece and nephew, play with them out of the park. I, we just had a great time. That's great. So it was really fun. I got to cook cook the uh, Thanksgiving dinner, which is always fun. I do love that part Very of it. Nice. So, yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, there was a time where Ben wanted to be a chef. And so, you know, as yeah, Ben talks about... True. You know, enjoying cooking, he's he's definitely an accomplished uh, cook in in that way, and so that's very cool. You know, it's it's funny. You know, you talked about Sheboygan, and I think you've told me before that your brother lives in Sheboygan. I mean, that's anytime I hear Sheboygan, I think about the scene in Home Alone where uh, you know I don't remember her name, where Kevin's mom is at the airport and 
Um, I can't remember, <laughs> wherever she landed in America first. And you know, here comes John Candy as this yep, polka star. Yep. And I think they were going to Sheboygan or from Sheboygan or something like that. And I never heard Sheboygan before that. And, uh, and offers her a ride through Chicago as they're going back to Wisconsin. So that's my, yeah, that's yeah. my, that's what I think of when I think uh, of Sheboygan. That's what amazing. a name for a town, huh? I know, Sheboygan. Yeah. So if there's yeah. anybody listening from Sheboygan, even if it happens to be Ben's brother, Shout out to <laughs> Sheboygan. <laughs> yeah, uh, there you go. There mm-hmm. you go. That's awesome. Well, very cool. So, Paul, we are going to dive in to our podcast for today, to our content. Um, we are in the final part of this series of kind of standalone episodes. Yeah. Um, we just concluded our series at Grace Chapel yesterday called The Simple Message of First John. Um, able to wrap that up yesterday with our last Discovery Bible study. And then now today, uh, we're going to discuss another article that you wrote for Renew.org. Yeah. Um, and kind of go through that a little bit. Yeah, so, sounds good. Uh, this article on Renew.org, it's called Bridge the Gap. Bridge the Gap. So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit, like, what what is this article about? Why'd you write it? Give us yeah. a little bit of a setup to it. So, I wrote this article probably two years ago now, somewhere in that okay. ballpark. Um, may may actually be a little bit longer ago. Uh, it's interesting. I was, I was trying to find a date on this article looking, and, and Renew doesn't actually date the articles as to when they were mm-hmm. written, submitted. And so, I, I don't remember exactly when this was, a couple of years ago, maybe two, three years ago. Um, and it it is something I wrote out of a number of conversations that I'd had with some other church leaders who were wrestling with a similar tension to what I found myself wrestling with. And it's you know almost this feeling that uh, that here we are in the church embracing some things that certainly our culture is looking at, and sometimes even. Um, we'll look at and say those are morally untenable positions or unholdable positions, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so we in the church are feeling a strain and a tension as the culture drifts ever further away from from where we have been. And you know, we we talked about this before. You know, as we move uh, more toward truly a post-Christian society that we live in. We were not always that way. I mean, we at one point in time, we lived in, in a place where certainly cultural Christianity in the United States, even though there was maybe disagreement about which denomination you should belong to. I mean, that was the basic mm-hmm. disagreement. It wasn't whether or not you should belong to a church at all. In fact, yeah. most people belong to a church, you know, and certainly we talked about belonging to a church. That's, that's not the goal. The goal is really to be a disciple of Jesus and follow Jesus and its disciples that make up a church, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. people that go to church and somehow they now belong to that. But, um, you know, but let's just accept the language as it is, you know, so people consider themselves as belonging to a particular church belonging to a particular denomination that kind of set the framework for how they viewed Scripture in God to some degree or maybe some doctrinal issues out of that. But those were the biggest disagreements we had, you know, for the most part. And, and certainly there were some people who uh, maybe didn't believe in God, but they were a vast minority, or some people who uh, pursued uh, other faith traditions, but they were also a fairly you know, small minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the vast majority of people in the United States were people who were Christians pursuing God on some level. It colored their, uh, their worldview. Maybe they even held to a biblical, a truly biblical worldview, mm-hmm. which would be interesting actually to have conversations on at some point in time. Well, maybe I can give away a little bit. In January, we'll be having some conversations that 
uh, we'll touch on this idea of what it, what is a biblical worldview and what does okay. that mean for us yeah. as Christians. But but without getting into that too much right now, you know, just to say that a biblical worldview begins with God created. In the beginning, God created. Mm-hmm. And so that everything that exists exists because of God. That's at the beginning of a biblical worldview. So that you were made by God. God gives you your purpose in life. The best thing you can do is find out why God created you and then live into that purpose. Okay, so that's, that's at the heart of what is a, 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 you know, a biblical worldview is about. So most people, let's just say, held that worldview at, at a time. Something along those lines anyway, whether they held it loosely or held it tightly. Um, but in the last uh, several generations, really, we've seen a real drifting from that, a real shift in, in the makeup of our nation. Uh, we've talked about the idea of the rise of the nuns before, which are people who have no religious affiliation mm-hmm. whatsoever. And as the dynamic has shifted and people embrace more a secular worldview or one of a number of secular worldviews, we'll talk about that as well in January, um, you know, there isn't just one secular worldview, which is often kind of the way that people mm-hmm. will, you know, kind of, uh, you know, present that to say a secular worldview. Well, there are a number of different secular worldviews. A secular worldview, all that is basically is the idea that we're embracing a worldview where God is not a part of the conversation and not a part of the picture. And of course, you can see how that can manifest in many different ways, even as we just describe it that way. And so we see the development of these secular godless worldviews. And so as the church continues to hold a God-centered worldview, or some would call a biblical worldview, you can see that there's going to be a tension that's going to arise between those who continue to hold this worldview and those who are now developing, creating new worldviews, going back and even maybe adopting some things out of old pagan worldviews. I mean, as all of that happens, and we were once one thing, but we're now becoming rapidly another thing as a nation you can see how that's going to create tension, especially for the church. Mm-hmm. All right, so here's the way that tension sometimes plays out. Um, you will have those who, in the church in particular, believe that maybe we've been a little too rigid, and, and certainly some of that can be true. I mean, there, there have been times when the church has been too dogmatic about some things, and we as Christians, maybe even well-intentioned, have definitely held Uh, wrong and sometimes unbiblical viewpoints Mm -hmm. um, because culture has always influenced the church. I think that's one thing that we should be honest about from from the onset of this conversation is that there's a lot of concern right now that culture is influencing the church, influencing the church, but the reality is that culture has always influenced the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, back to the beginning of the establishment of the church, the cultures in different cities, which, you know, each different city at that point in time, because there was enough disconnection between cities, it's not this rapidly complex and connected world that we live in today, this global world, is not what the first century church experienced. Each city would have its own culture to some degree. And that was true for Roman and Greek cities, um, you know, all across the known world at that point in time. They had their own culture to some degree, their own God that they worshipped primarily, although they might be part of the pantheon of gods, but they had one God that they gave primarily their allegiance to. Um, and then, of course, there was allegiance to Caesar and everything else that went with that. Um, but that culture of that day in each one of those different cities and then the overarching Roman culture had an influence 
upon the church in the first century. Mm -hmm. We see that in the letters that are written. So culture has always had an influence upon the church. You see some of the very dark ideas of the period of time we call the Dark Ages or the medieval times, the dark ideas that even creep into the church, even seen in the way that uh, the artistry of the church was reflected during medieval times, where you walk into uh, an old, old church building, and what are you going to see depicted? Many scenes of hell and torment and torture because there was a lot of darkness that was an influence of culture upon the church at that point in time. And certainly, did that connect with some possibly biblical themes and certainly then some pseudo-biblical themes? Yeah, it did. Mm -hmm. But that was culture influencing the church as much as anything else around. And that makes sense when you have all these plagues that, um, that we see happening in uh, the medieval times, you know, whether you have uh, the Black Death, as it was called, whether you have the bubonic plague, and those are uh, really one and the same, although sometimes they were called different things, or the Black Death was more than just the bubonic plague, but all of these things having an influence, the darkness in society, the hopelessness, and all that uh, having an influence upon the church, then the Enlightenment having an influence mm -hmm. upon the church, is now we start to look to Art, art and reason and the scientific method and everything else. And now the church starts to pursue truth as, as though it's you know, something we can fully get our minds around or the truth of God. And so we lost the mystery of some things that are, you know, Paul says the mystery of the gospel. Well, we were pretty sure we could explain, you know, even in our heritage, the churches of Christ, we could explain the gospel in five steps and even how you obey the gospel is five, here's these five steps and if you do this then you've obeyed the gospel and paul says well the gospel is a mystery in the end and so yes is there a way that we respond to it of course there is but we started thinking that way very structured because of the influence of culture upon the church so now here we are in this uh, you know, this postmodern world, and it should come as no surprise that if modernity, if the Enlightenment, if medieval times, if the cultures that arose out of those societies had an influence and an effect upon the church, that our current culture is also having an influence and an effect and an impact upon the church. Of course it is. And some of those things actually may push against some things that maybe were not the best, you know, that we lost, you know, mystery entirely within the church. I mean, you see, I've seen a number of friends over the last several years um, convert, convert to uh, primarily Eastern Orthodoxy because of a desire to embrace some of the mystery, the mysticism, some will even say, that probably was present early on in the church that we have kind of lost. You know, so sometimes it brings in some good elements, sometimes it brings in some bad elements. Well, primarily this article is focused on the impact that culture is having upon the church in trying to get us, uh, you know, to, to move toward culture or pulling us from some of the places where we ought to be rooted in, the way I say it in this article, is eternity. And it's pulling us away from some of those things that are eternal, that are forever, that are connected deeply to biblical truths. And the desire of culture would be for us to compromise. And I say culture as if it's a monolith. Obviously, we know it's not, but the culture at large does have that type of impact, that type mm -hmm. of effect. And so, so um, what do you what do you argue is the solution for that? <laughs> well, so um, so let me say what I think is not the solution okay. first. Okay. You know, we've talked about this illustration before that a friend of mine gave me a number of years ago. Again, culture will influence the church. 
Uh, often what we've done is we've looked, and the, the way that we determined whether, we, whether or not we were being faithful in the church is to reach out, find where the world is. So the world is now at arm's length. We reach out, we find the world, we have the world at arm's length, so we know we're keeping a distance from the world. But that assumes then that we're going to continue to be faithful by just keeping ourselves at arm's length from the world. But as the world moves, we now start to compromise at some point in time. You know, you could say, well, where the world or where culture was on some things, some issues 10 years ago, if you kept the world at arm's length, you would be where the world was 10 years ago as the church right now. And then that would show you you're on this trajectory. You're on a path that's obviously leading somewhere. <laughs> And oftentimes it's leading away from God because, again, remember the influence of culture around us is currently highly secular. So mm -hmm. godless, intentionally godless. And so, so that is what has been happening. And so in the article, the way that I talk about the temptation that we often have within the church, because of the fact that we want to maintain a certain amount of relevancy to the world and culture around us, is and we also look out and see that we have this gap that is becoming ever wider as the world moves farther and farther away mm -hmm. from church as the ideas that culture uh, propagates move farther and farther away from the ideas that we are holding to that are biblical or that are part of that god-centered worldview we see the gap widening it continues to widen, and, and we look at that, and we see that gap is almost insurmountable because of a desire to continue to reach and engage people. Mm -hmm. We want to do something about that. Well, the question is, how do people get across this gap? How do we get people in culture across the gap to connect with the church? Mm -hmm. And what we realize, because we've been trying and we can't do it, you know, maybe even sometimes we talk about that in the sense of fighting the culture wars, right? Mm -hmm. So we're engaging mm -hmm. the culture war. Well, why are we fighting the culture war? Because we're trying to change culture by engaging primarily at the ideological level, sometimes the theological level, but when we engage at the theological level, we realize those are conversations they're not even having, so then we switch, we revert to ideology. Mm -hmm. So we start engaging at the ideological level. We find out we're not winning the battle there. We can't influence the culture there, uh, not, not nearly enough. We're, we're continuing to see culture racing away, away from where culture was you know, in the past at, at a breakneck pace. Okay, So con culture continues to shift, and there's so many reasons for that. The information age, the internet age, everything that goes along with that just has enabled uh, the ability for cultural thought uh, to change rapidly, just mm -hmm. to change incredibly rapidly. So we see that happening. We see this ever widening chasm. You know, I want you to think for a minute that, you know, if you were standing, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, or maybe just, you know, you're standing looking on one side of a riverbank, looking across to the other side of a riverbank that's a mile across. Just imagine that. And you're trying to think about how in the world do we get the people from over there to over here? Well, if it's a river, then you could you know, maybe send a boat back and forth and you could start to work on making that happen. But if it's a chasm like the Grand Canyon, now we start to see the problem that we have is how do we get the people from over there over here? Because we believe people need to come to know Jesus, um, but we just don't know how in the world we can bridge that chasm. Okay, so what some churches have done and what has been a trend in evangelical Christianity. I mean, we're seeing it right now, right? So this giant controversy in the Methodist Church. I saw an article just yesterday of 286, I think, 
churches choosing to leave the, the Methodist Church, is that the UMC, I think it is, United Methodist mm -hmm. Church, mm -hmm. in North Carolina alone, saying, we're moving this way. Well, why are they doing that? Well, it is, it is the issue of same-sex marriage and that the UMC is deciding, that the, at least the North American Conference, um, to, uh, to embrace, affirm same-sex marriage, um, you know, by doing that, then, of course, saying, you know, that, yes, uh, homosexual committed relationships are godly and God-ordained and, and, and okay and fine, scripturally fine. Although some of them are pretty honest, by the way, in saying, no, we know the Bible speaks out against this. So there are some in the Methodist church uh, on, on that more progressive liberal end who are saying, we know the Bible speaks against this. But we believe that for the sake of culture, we have to say yes to this, which makes my point mm -hmm. exactly. The idea is this. How are we going to shrink the gap when culture keeps moving away from us? Well, we've tried to tug at culture, and we can't tug at culture. We can't narrow the gap by pulling at culture. Yeah. So what we try to do is shift the biblical position or the church's stance, because sometimes there's an omission. We can't shift the biblical mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is shift the church's stance to make mm -hmm. our stance closer to the stance of culture, thereby we've narrowed the gap. Mm -hmm. And maybe now people can I get see. across from there okay. to here. Okay. Now there are all sorts of folks doing this, and that's, you know, sometimes become... Can you give known. us another example of what that might look like? Um, another example is, uh, you know, and both of these surround the, the question of, of gender, for mm -hmm. example. Um, you know, uh, you listen as well as I do to a podcast called Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, Justin Brierley is the host of that. Would recommend that podcast to anyone yep, because he he listens to both sides of the issue, and for the most part tries to not take a stance. Although mm -hmm. sometimes he definitely does because you know mm -hmm. he, mm -hmm. he almost can't help himself. Um, <laughs> but what Justin Brierley does is engages both sides of the issue. So of course, when there's both sides of the issue, he's had this conversation and happen, conversation happening on his podcast especially the ones relating gender, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sexuality and marriage and other things like that. And so, you know, the question of gender is another place. The question of sexuality before or outside of marriage is another place where some are compromising. Um, should marriage really be, is it really realistic to have marriage be a lifelong committed covenant that two people make between each other? Um, what about Jesus' hard teachings on divorce and then remarriage as well? Many churches have compromised there because it's just too hard to say this to the culture around us. Well, the reality is, if we look clearly at the teachings of Scripture, we're not necessarily supposed to be binding things on the culture around us. We're supposed to be binding those things on those within the church. Um, but, but yes, that does mean that we are saying, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to necessarily have to change some of the things that you're embracing your worldview, your secular worldview, whatever secularized worldview that is, or whatever non-biblical, non-God-centered worldview is, to become part of the church, or as you become a part of the church, maybe we should say, because God does accept people where they are. We've talked about that before, that God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you way too much to leave you the way you are. Mm. You know, so God is calling people to something different, and that is what we're supposed to be about in the church, having those difficult conversations calling people out of the lives that they once lived, which by the way, there are a number of scriptures that say, you know, the way you once lived, you now live like this, you once lived like this, you now live like this. We talked about those in the series, The Way Back. Um, that is the call of the church, to call people out of one way of doing and living to a whole new way of doing and living things that lines up with the will of God mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. 
Now, again, what people have done in the process to, to walk away or what churches, some churches have done is now the church has established a position that is not the biblical position on a number of different issues, whether it be marriage, divorce, and remarriage is one of those, whether it be gender, whether it be sexuality, um, or what sex is for and what sex is about, um, you know, whether it be uh, the kind of standards we ought to hold ourselves to as it relates to ethics and other things like that. Mm -hmm. you know, so there's one set of ethics that works when you're out in the business world and there's another set of ethics that you pursue in your personal life. And sometimes that has almost been endorsed by, by church leaders. Well, we know we have to do certain things like that that way out in the world. And so you know, maybe telling the truth is not something you have to do when you're engaging out there in the world, but yeah, you should do that in your personal life. Mm -hmm. And lots of places that we've compromised when what we ought to be called to is biblical integrity. So what I encourage in this article, what I advocate for in this article, is that we don't try to narrow the gap. Because in, when we narrow the gap, we're going to compromise. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so I describe this idea of thinking about a bridge, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a bridge that one side of that bridge is anchored in eternity or mm -hmm. eternal truth mm -hmm. or objective God-centered truth or a biblical worldview, whatever you want to put on that that cements that for you or yep. all of those things. Yep. Okay, so one side of that bridge is anchored in eternity. The other side is going to be shifting, ever shifting, and we are called to build that bridge to culture, not narrow the gap between church, church and culture. And okay. building okay. that bridge is difficult, but what we've seen consistently is the way that those bridges are built is through relationship. It's okay. through relationship. Okay. It's through deep seasons of prayer and fasting and even maybe praying against some cultural strongholds that exist because we want God to be on the move and we want people, people's lives to be changed. And yes, we want people to come to know Jesus just as much as sometimes, and you know, I know this label um, is a little nebulous, you know, but... Uh, we've talked a little bit about this before, so I think I can use this label, you know, that, that progressive Christianity, our progressive Christian friends who are narrowing the gap, I believe, let's be very, uh, let's be very benevolent in the way we describe this. And, and I, you know, I, there was a time where I would talk about progressive Christians without having listened to or read a whole lot of progressive Christians. That has changed. I've read a lot of progressive Christians at this point in time, and I have listen to a lot of their thinking. And here's what I believe about most progressive Christians. They're not narrowing the gap because they're bad people. They're narrowing the gap because they want people to be able to come to know Jesus. That supersedes everything else is let's help people know Jesus. But the problem is it's not always Jesus as he is, or it's not always Jesus with his difficult mm -hmm. teachings. It's Jesus minus some of those things mm -hmm. because it's just too difficult. So we want to know Jesus who's um, who's always grace, but Jesus who's not always truth. Yeah. And Jesus yeah. is always grace, but he is always truth. And he's those things in equal measure, which creates attention. He's full of grace and truth, mm -hmm. as we've talked mm -hmm. about before. And we need to be people full of grace and truth as well. Jesus built relationships with everybody he came in contact to. That's what he looked to do. And those relationships acted as a bridge mm -hmm. upon which mm -hmm. people could walk from one side to the other. So maybe help like help help give a give a little bit more of an example of like what 
what that might look like of bridging the gap mm. in some of those areas that you've um, that you've already mentioned. You mentioned the example with um, the United Methodist Church mm-hmm. of taking a change of stance on homosexuality. What might that look like to rather than narrowing that gap in a culture that is progressively changing in the yeah. ideals of um, in its idea towards homosexuality that's just becoming more and more wildly ex- widely accepted yep. what might that look like for us as the church to not narrow the gap but to bridge the gap towards uh, gay people yeah yeah I think the Apostle Paul in first uh, Corinthians 9 talks about this and he's talking about some different issues but the principles apply well to us. Okay. You know, the, Apostle, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, this is beginning in 19, he says, Though I am free, I belong to no one. I've made, my a slave to, I've made myself a slave to, in, to everyone to win as many as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes our progressive friends will take this and use this, I think, incorrectly. The Apostle Paul is not saying, I compromised myself or I compromised Scripture. He's saying, I made myself a servant. Mm-hmm of all these different kinds of people, people that we would sometimes turn our nose up at, people that we would sometimes be tempted to treat unkindly, people that we would ostracize and keep at arm's length, which honestly, the idea of keeping the world at arm's length to me is actually a problematic one. We're not called to keep the world at arm's length. We're called to embrace the people in the world while not being a people of the world. That's, that is the call on a Christian life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what the Apostle Paul says this. He you know, says in this, he says, I've made myself a servant to everyone, a slave to everyone. The word there, Greek word is doulos, which can be slave or servant. I've made myself a servant to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he goes on to give some examples. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. Now, the Apostle Paul was a Jew. But he's saying, look, there were times when I was around Jewish people, I would go ahead and accept some of the customs of the law. I would not condemn these people for what they were doing unless they were condemning others and having a, and having mm-hmm. a negative effect upon mm-hmm. the spirituality of others by doing that. But he says, I became like one under the law to those under law, even though I'm not myself under the law, so as to win those under the law. Mm-hmm. And he says, to those not having a law, I became like one who didn't have the law, though I am not free from God's law. Mm-hmm. Again, what he's saying is, I engaged with those folks. I met them at their level. He very clearly says, I didn't compromise. He says, because I am not free from God's law. I am under Christ's law. So Paul recognized exactly where he, he recognizes the bridge, that the end of the bridge that's anchored in eternity. Mm-hmm. But he also understands this other side of the bridge that has to be able to pivot to engage people. Otherwise, we're going to have a bridge to nowhere at some point mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. If you have a bridge that's not able to pivot, well, here's where a culture was, and your bridge was anchored in eternity. It was anchored in the, with, it was connected with the culture at some point in time. Culture shifted, but you were not able to shift and pivot. Then, yes, we become irrelevant to culture, but it is through relationship, through becoming a servant, which is, I mean, that is the posture of love. You know, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, in the Last Supper, as he washes their feet, becoming a servant. Look, I'm, I'm taking on the form of a servant among you right now. I'm showing you this. And then Jesus says, and you ought, to go, you ought to do the same thing to each other. And I don't think he's just saying to those guys, look, do this to each other. He's saying, you do this. This is the kind of life you live as a servant to everyone, to all. 
And then the Apostle Paul puts on it this tag of, we do this, why? To win as many as possible. Mm -hmm. But he's not talking about narrowing the gap. He's talking about bridging the gap. Gotcha. He says okay. to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. What he's saying is I engaged with the weak relationally to win the weak. He's not mm -hmm. saying mm -hmm. I became in the sense of I compromised myself again and I was weak too. No, he didn't do that. He says, he says, I become all things to all people. I'm relationally connecting with all people. Why? So that by all possible means I might save some. He says, I can do all this. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share its many blessings. So he's trying to pull people into the gospel lifestyle, the good news lifestyle, the, the God-centered worldview, you could even say. He's trying to pull people into that because he knows that's where they'll truly find freedom, mm -hmm. not by continuing mm -hmm. to pursue mm -hmm. themselves or another worldview, whatever that is. So to continue with that same, the same example there, maybe, like, maybe the answer is more of... It, it is, it is this relational push, mm -hmm. right? So the question is less of, um, you know, we, we, we've talked about bad ways that the church has done this. I'm just going to continue with the example of with the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. and with one bad way is narrowing the gap yes. of changing the church's standards. Another way, another bad way that certainly has not worked is the culture war right. of trying to push and pull and yes. change culture. That's not worked. So what you're advocating here in bridging the gap would be more of build relationships. So the question yes. might be is it's not about changing your stance or fighting against someone else, but like, do you have relationships with someone in, yes. with people exactly in the right. LGBTQ community that you're yes. reaching out to, that you're able to, and then on a relational level, have conversations and right. get to the gospel in a relational context? Is that more... Yeah. The model you're. I think exactly for. so. You know, so let's take that a step further. Okay. I I have had conversations where I'm urging for people to build bridges, where people have said to me, very conservative Christians have said to me, "Well, I don't think I could ever have a relationship with a person like that." Yeah. Well, Jesus had relationships with lots of people who the religious crowd of that day would have said, "Well, I would never have a relationship with a person like that." You know, so think about Jesus eating with Matthew, Levi, and all the tax collectors. Yeah. Think about Jesus being yeah. accused yeah. of eating with sinners and tax collectors and maybe even prostitutes. And, you know, where people said, well, if Jesus, if you really knew the kind of people you were eating with, and that's ridiculous. Of course, Jesus knew the kind of people he was yeah. eating with yeah. <laughs> because he says, look, I didn't come. Doctors don't come for the healthy. They come for the sick. And so, yeah. yes, I get it. There's sickness here. There's brokenness here. But as I am on mission, these are the kind of people I'm looking to reach. And mm -hmm. so I'm eating with them, which was, that was the primary way you could show in the first century, especially in Jewish culture, but in all first century um, Mideast culture and even the Greco-Roman culture, that you accepted or that you were willing to have relationship with someone. Mm -hmm. So again, there's a difference between accepting the person and accepting a person's lifestyle. Mm -hmm. We have, to, we have to be clear about that. But Jesus went out of his way, even if it meant that others would criticize him, <laughs> to accept people. And then was very plain about it. I don't accept your lifestyle. I mean, Jesus, we have recorded one time, and it's, you know, this maybe we don't know whether this story happened. It was added later in the manuscripts. But, you know, Jesus 
has this woman who was caught in adultery brought before him. Um, he goes through and has this conversation with the, the religious teachers, the leaders, the Pharisees that brought this woman before him. Um, you know, basically says, look, you, you, if any of you is without sin, cast the first stone. They all leave. The old ones go first. Uh, the young ones are left standing, but finally everybody drops their rock. And Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? She looks up and sees nobody there. They're not here, sir. They've gone. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. But here's what I do tell you. And, and I think this story may have, may likely be rooted in historical oral tradition and found its way in, mm-hmm. um, into Scripture that way. Um, and I can imagine Jesus saying this many times. I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. I wonder how often Jesus had that kind of a conversation. Is it possible that he even said those words to the woman at the well? I, I mean, I think very possible. Is it possible that he continued to encourage, I mean, I, I'm sure Jesus continued to encourage his disciples and all those he came in contact with to leave your life of sin. To leave behind the sin because I didn't create you for that. That's not what I made you for, even if you're predisposed to it. Mm. Even if maybe you have a tendency that draws you that way. Can we be honest about the fact that we, we all have tendencies that draw us towards sin? That's what the natural man is mm-hmm. called or mm-hmm. flesh. In Greek, the word sarks. It is our sinful fleshly nature that draws us towards sin. We may all have different kinds of predispositions, but Jesus calls all of us to leave our life of sin and come and follow him. That's the call of, you know, of, of all the synoptic gospels. Jesus says something along these lines. He says, take up your cross or deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. In Luke's gospel, he says, this is a daily thing. And so that is the call upon all of our lives. Yeah. But Jesus, in order to issue that call in a relational way, not just a transactional way, you do this one thing, then you're good and justified with me. No, he said, relationally, you come and build a relationship with me as I'm seeking to build a relationship with you. You leave behind your life of sin. Now we come into relationship with each other, or we come into relationship and you learn to leave behind your life of sin. I think it happens both ways at times. You know, mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. I've met people who that moment they knew they were going to follow Jesus. I mean, I've had incredible stories where, where you know, I'm talking with a, a minister the other day who uh, probably a little younger than I am, but he's telling me how he came out of his, this life of incredible addiction to become a minister. Mm-hmm. And he says, the moment I knew I was following Jesus, it was over. The addiction mm-hmm. was gone. I'm talking serious, deep-rooted addiction that people normally have to go through years of counseling yep. for. And yep. he said, when I met Jesus, I left all of that behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is looking to call people out of that type of that broken lifestyle and just brokenness in general. If we're supposed to be the hands, of feet of Je- the hands and feet of Jesus, but we're afraid to engage with broken people, as Jesus did, or we're saying things like, well, I don't think I could be in relationship with that kind of person. Yeah, yeah. We're very, we're, we're quite deficient yeah. in truly being like Jesus. Yeah. You know, so we, we, we have to do that. That's our call, but it is relationally building the bridges. That, that's the only mm-hmm. way that bridges mm-hmm. are built. Bridges are built relationally. That's good. Gaps are narrowed systemically often through compromise. And we, we just can't do that. We're called to be a relational bunch of bridge builders, mm. individually and as the church as well. That's good. 
That's good. So towards the end of the article here, you have you list five like practical applications that yep. you think that we could do out of this. So let's just go over that um, in the time we have remaining, sure. and like briefly talk about these five. Points. Yeah. So um, let me read you the first one, and then you can kind of explain that back sure. down to us a little bit. So the first one, first application point you have is take time to invest in building relationships, not only with fellow Christ followers, but with unbelievers as well. Use those relationships as a bridge for the gospel. Many are calling this approach relational discipleship. Think of, uh, think of the way Jesus invested inten intensely in a group of 12 and even more deeply in a group of three. His example should be our model. Yeah, so... Um, we've already talked about some of that, but maybe yep. I could expound upon the idea of relational discipleship and maybe ask a question. Mm -hmm. um, when, at what point in time does somebody become a disciple of Jesus? Well, I think the answer is probably when they decide to follow Jesus. You know, as we've mm -hmm. talked about the Matthew 419 definition that we embrace here at Grace Chapel, that a disciple is somebody who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, committed to living out the mission of Jesus, okay? So those three things are part of what it looks like to be a fully formed disciple of Jesus, but discipleship begins at the choice to follow, or being a disciple begins at the choice to follow. Here's the second question on that. When does discipleship begin? When, when do I begin discipling somebody? Mm -hmm. Is it not until the moment that they've decided to follow Jesus? Well, I don't know if that's true. I think discipleship begins, or my intent, my efforts to disciple someone begin way before they say yes to becoming disciples. Mm. And so when we're thinking about the idea of relational discipleship, you know, when people ask me, well, how many folks are you discipling? Well, that's hard for me to even give a number to. Now, I could sit down and probably put a number on it, you know, I, I mean, probably actively somewhere between seven and eight folks, right? Mm. Um, but there are others who I am making intentional moves toward relationally, and we may not have even we may not even have yet had a gospel-centered conversation. Mm -hmm. But bit by bit, I'm trying to build that bridge toward them. Again, as I urge in here to use those relationships as a bridge for the gospel. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking to build this bridge toward these folks so that the gospel can go across, so that they can walk across to the gospel, whatever that happens, you know, whatever imagery works better for you in that. Mm -hmm. But that was the model and the example of Jesus. Yeah. Jesus was looking to build these types of relationships. We should be invested in relational discipleship as well for the sake of building those kind of bridges. And I think we ought to be that intentional. And I'm talk not talking about being manipulative, but I am talking about being intentional. Um, manipulative just speaks to your motives. And if you have bad motives, like, you know, I wanna be the person who leads the most people to, uh, to Jesus. Well, at, at that point in time, if that's true, you may start to compromise what it looks like to actually lead people to Jesus. You may become coercive, there may be all, if your motivation is the love of Christ and extending the love of Christ to people and building those kinds of relationships so that they can hear the good news, you're not gonna be worried about whether you lead three people to Jesus this year or 30 people to Jesus this year. Every Yes, every number matters because a number is a person and I get that, that's true. But your motivation is not gonna be three or 30 or 300, it's gonna be I'm going to be yeah. a yeah. vessel for love. For yeah. the love of God, for the grace of God, for the truth of God to be extended 
uh, into the lives of others. And so in that, you know, Jesus' example ought to be our example. So that first point of application there. That's good. Awesome. The second one, this one is kind of focused towards uh, preachers, but yes. I think maybe you can contextualize this a little bit for all of our sure. audience. Uh, so it is, when you preach, don't dive into your message, but make an effort to build a relational connection. It, um, it helps if it is evident that you are human too. I will often dedicate, dedicate several hours to crafting the first five minutes of a message. Yeah, that's, that's very true for me. I, I think sometimes... <clears throat> I feel like I spend too much time worrying about the first five minutes, but then there are so many times where I walk away saying, it was in that first five minutes that I built a relational bridge with someone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes that comes in even a moment of self-disclosure to say, hey, you struggle with this, I struggle with this too. Let's see what God has to say to a group of struggling people. So the idea of it, it helps if it is evident that you're human too, for people to know that we are not perfect people. Mm-hmm. We're people on a journey toward uh, seeing the image of God restored within us and that happens bit by bit this side of eternity but won't happen fully until eternity. Yeah. And so it's good for us to be honest with people. Now, I think the gap sometimes looks wider to, pe- to wider, if you're standing on the side of culture, on, the, on that side of the chasm, the gap to the church sometimes looks wider than it needs to because we in the church pretend we're something that we're not. Mm. We in the church pretend that we're holier than we are, that we're yeah, better yeah. than we are, or that we're better than they are, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. trying to make this distinction, sometimes just in an effort to feel good about who we are. In that process, we make people feel bad about who they are so when we come across that way, we don't build a relational bridge. When I'm honest about the fact that I struggle too, man, I'll tell you, so I've done, you know, as I've, we've talked about uh, the last few weeks, I've done DBS, Discovery Bible Study, with, um, with a number of different groups, sometimes made up of all Christians on the journey toward that image restoration, sometimes with people that have no idea that the image of God needs to be restored in them. When I share at the beginning a challenge that I'm struggling with, and the challenge is sometimes in a group like that, where I feel like I can be honest and open, um, is a sin struggle, is a doubt struggle, is a whatever it happens to be. Hey, I'm struggling with this. When it's you know, as I've shared, I can share pretty openly about this because I've just learned to be open with this at this point in time. But when I've learned to share about the fact that through the winters, I often struggle with seasonal affective disorder, a type of depression, and I, um, I'm more susceptible to sin or I have less, uh, less of a barrier between um, my normal way of behaving and my emotions. And so my temper is a lot closer to the surface. I'm a lot more irritable, whatever that happens to be. Mm-hmm. And I share that in a group like that and people see well, here's this minister of a church who's being honest with us about that. It changes the dynamic in yeah. there. And so, yeah. you know, maybe not just in preaching, so that, that gives application in plenty of other places. It's to be honest about That's the good. fact that you're a person who struggles too. And that can build a relational bridge because sometimes people see us as just a step too far away mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not human too, mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, you know, and so it's good to dispel that myth up front. So this next one I think is fairly similar. Um, It's that as you prepare messages, consider those who are skeptical and try to imagine how they might receive your words. Acknowledge skepticism when and where it may exist in connection with your message, the message you're presenting. 
Yeah, and so this is, of course, very important for those of us who are um, who are preaching, teaching. Um, but it doesn't just apply to the stage. You know, we're all disciples who are making disciples, or that's that's the call on all of our lives. And so, as we've acknowledged more and more, I remember I wrote this article about three years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, even my thinking has changed about what ought to be the primary entry point to a relationship with God's people. And that not necessarily being Sunday morning, but that being disciple-making relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, as we're out in the community engaging, instead of just, you know, man, it's, you know, the, the, the old saying about walking a mile in someone else's shoes mm -hmm. or trying to understand why someone sees something the way they do, even when it's vastly different than the way you see something, I mean, that, that idea is gold. I mean, it is an absolute golden nugget when we're trying to build relationships. Here's why. If we don't do that, you hear an idea that's different than an idea that you hold dear, what's your impulse? To immediately push back and attack that idea. It helps sometimes to ask a question. Why, why do you think that way? What brought yeah. you to the point where yeah. you think that way and, and you believe that? Now, I can't do that in a sermon on a stage. I can't say, hey, mm -hmm. does anybody feel, does anybody? <laughs> so I have to try to anticipate that yeah. Yeah. on the stage. Yeah. And you know, as a communicator as well, we have to try to anticipate those moments <gasps> of skepticism or potentially disagreement. Mm -hmm. And we state those out loud. And we may say, um, you know, I acknowledge that some don't, feel this way and don't believe that way and, mm -hmm. and may even hold these reasons for not believing the way they do, let me give you the reason why I think even with those considerations, here's the best place for you to be or here's where Jesus is calling to us anyway, calling us anyway, or on this point of disagreement, I don't even understand why Jesus calls us to this thing specifically, but I know that faithfulness, that faithfulness at its, you know, its most pure form is that moment where I don't understand and I say yes to what Jesus asks anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, that that is deep faithfulness and that's what we're all being called to as Christ followers. So to acknowledge that, to acknowledge even the difficulty, you know, as we talk about the LGBTQ life or the LGBTQ community and the mm -hmm. lifestyle that often goes along with it, can we be honest and acknowledge that if we're calling people to leave behind some things that they feel at a very true and real level, to leave that behind for the sake of glorifying God, that that is a big thing we're asking. That is a yeah. big thing that God is asking. And if, if for that person it was a life of celibacy that God was calling them into, when they had hopes and dreams of spending a lifetime with somebody, that would be a huge thing we're asking. Yeah. that God is asking of them, can we just acknowledge that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And not be just right off the bat judgmental, yeah. but try to understand. And that's why we talk about the value of curiosity over certainty mm -hmm. uh, so often, which is an idea borrowed from a book called Difficult Conversations. Um, but being curious about why someone thinks the way they do or why they're behaving the way they are, whatever, and then allowing that curiosity to flavor the humility or the humble way in which you approach that conversation instead of coming at the conversation with, you know, the Bible in your hand. I mean, we call that Bible beating. You know, mm -hmm. when you Bible beat someone with the truth instead of engage relationally. Well, Jesus, Jesus went for the relational method, at least always first. You know, yeah. and there were probably there was probably a time, and sometimes you know people can say, well, what about the Pharisees? Well. 
I think he started relationally with them. There just came a point in time where he realized, I can't build the relational bridge to these guys no matter how much I try. And so Jesus started being more blunt and upfront with them. And maybe that there, there's a time for that. Mm-hmm. But Jesus always began with the intent of building relationship and understanding someone and speaking out of that then earned credibility about what the truth of God was even in their lives. Yeah. So I think, I think there's broad, broad-based application there. All right, so you got two more points here. We'll see if we can move through these two um, Mm -hmm. quickly. The next one is the words of Scripture often clash with the values of culture. Um, Many secular studies, however, confirm the wisdom of living as God would have us uh, would have us do. Learn, uh, lean into these opportunities provided by secular studies that unintentionally confirm the truths of God. For example, many secular studies show just how important the nuclear family is to healthy development of children. Yeah, so um, let's just use that last example to kind of make this point and and, and to think through this application. Um, The broader point is this, that that God's truth is truth. (laughs) And that as you know, secular studies, and what I mean is, you know, studies done by universities who are obviously not Christian universities, who have nothing to do with God, whether it be, you know, right now in Europe we're seeing this um, confirmed in a number of studies that, you know, as far as the choice to, um, the choice to have gender reassignment surgery by people who are embracing, people who are uh, confused about what gender they are very early on in life, sometimes 10, 11, 12 years old, is not a wise choice because many of those people are coming back at 18, 19, 20, and, are, and there's a, there are actually some lawsuits in Europe. They're suing their parents, they're suing the doctors and others who enabled them to say yes to that. Instead mm-hmm. of saying you're a mm-hmm. child, no, we can't say yes to this, and we're seeing a rush to this in many, uh, in many states in, in, in the country right now here too, where you know, they're making those things a right, and you should say yes mm-hmm. to a child who feels that way. Um, there are studies that are confirming, no, you shouldn't say yes to that because sometimes people are confused and as they grow older, they fully live into their biological gender where they had a moment of confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nuclear family, uh, another really good example of uh, the reality that children who are raised in a two-parent family, okay, and, and there, there are studies done about this, about whether or not it is better for a child to live with one parent, to remove them from a tension that may exist between two parents. Let's say there's a lot of fussing and arguing going on. I'm not talking about physical abuse. I'm talking about just the parents don't get along, mm-hmm. right? And so the decision is often made, well, our kids would be better off to be out of this home where there is tension. The reality is studies confirm that a child is better off being raised in a home where there's tension in two parents than a home that, um, where the parents have split in order, mm. in order wow. to avoid attention or avoid that type of tension. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, God calls people to stay married, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and yes, there are outs and exceptions, but even in those outs and exceptions, the assumption is not, even in the case I think of infidelity, that that naturally means divorce. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think Jesus gives an out for divorce, but I think Jesus, may, or an out for infidelity, uh, and then, you know, that out is divorce. But I don't think that the assumption is, well, if there's infidelity, it means divorce. Yeah. Even in that case. So, you know, I think certainly our no-fault divorce society 
which is the move of the culture, which has had an effect and an influence on the church, is no good whatsoever. <laughs> Just you, you don't like this person anymore, divorce him. You're not happy anymore, divorce him. You might be happier with someone else, divorce him. It's not good for the nuclear family. It's not good for a family with children, and it's not good for people who don't have kids. In fact, there's another study from a few years ago, and I don't know if I could trace this one down anymore, but um, a study done to determine if people are happy after leaving a marriage that they are unhappier in five years later. So are you happier now having left that marriage than if you'd stayed with that marriage? Mm -hmm. And the study showed that 90% of the people five years later, if they stayed within that marriage, were actually happier. Mm. Wow. We're happier than the people, and then the, the people who divorced, only yeah. 10% of the people who divorced thinking they would be happier ended up actually being happier. Mm. So perfect correlation on that. So again, God's truth just borne out by these studies over and over again. So it's good to lean into that and say, you know, we, we could have learned that from Scripture all along if we would have just said yes. Um, you know, and I, I sometimes say it this way on a Sunday morning. Imagine if we said yes to the things of God how much better off we would all be. There would be no infidelity. There would be no divorce. There would be all <laughs> kids would grow up in two-parent families. And everything, all of that would be better for everybody. It would be, it'd be a better society. There's no doubt about that. There's, you almost can't argue with that. So anyway, that's, that's a fourth point. Yeah, that's good. So the final one, final point mm -hmm. to bridge the gap that you say is, like Jesus did, tell stories. Stories exist as a tool that often serves to soften the blow of difficult teaching, while still powerfully and uncompromisingly communicating these difficult teachings. As an added benefit, people tend to remember truths they learned in story form. Yeah, and so here's what I'll say about this. Uh, often what I'll do is I'll tell a story about my life or the story about someone else's life, and it will illustrate a truth. Um, sometimes I do that in a somewhat self-deprecating fashion because, again, it it's you know connecting back with the idea of showing others that we're human too you know mm -hmm. i mean to say you know i i once believed like that and i lived for myself and man when i lived for myself i found myself at every turn breaking you know breaking relation with broken relationships hurting people hurting myself i came to the point where i just realized there's got to be a better way than this and the way was the way of Jesus, right? And so, you know, I'll sometimes share those kind of personal stories. Um, Jesus would tell parables often, you know, that was what he did mm -hmm. uh, to kind of divulge and share difficult teachings. But, you know, the reality is that people remember those difficult teachings. And the same is true as they learn from us as we share stories as well. Yeah. Um, when the prophet Nathan had to go to David, um, he didn't go to David and say, hey, you committed adultery and you killed that that lady's husband and you are you're just a horrible person he went and told him a story about a man who took the one sheep of another man and made that sheep his own even though he had all his own you know all these sheep of his own and he sacrificed that sheep to you know so again there there stories will often illuminate and soften the blow of difficult te difficult teachings this is an art that has to be learned some people, some people are naturally good at this. For most of us, for me, it has been something that I've had to, to learn to do and am still learning to do um, as I step forward. But every time I do this well, it makes a difference. And I find it's better than if I just led with blunt truth. I'm often able to come around to that truth in a more gracious way. Um, in a way that will have people's heads nodding. And sometimes I've had people come back and say, remember That's when good. you told me yeah. 
this. That's good. I've been thinking about that, and it it's you know it's it's affected me. So mm. so anyway, you know, I, I think those are the five practical applications. And again, hopefully, even though some of those are directed specifically to church leaders, maybe even preachers, um, there's application for all of us in those. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. So. Um, that, that concludes this article. And once again, I'll remind you, if you'd like to read that yourself, it's called Bridge the Gap, yep. available on Renew.org, written by Paul. Yep. Um, but as we, as we come to a close, we've kind of already talked about the practices that we could implement. But do you just want to, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to close on this article? Yeah, I'd just say what I was kind of saying just a second ago, just um, what, whatever role you have in the body of Christ as a follower of Jesus you know, you heard the five applications. You even heard maybe some of those that were more specifically applied at first be broken down for you. What point of application is it that you might go live into or that you might say, I need to become better at? Maybe you're not building relationships with non-Christians at all. Mm-hmm. Go do it. Yeah. Maybe you just dive directly into truth because you're a very blunt person. Build a relational connection. Be honest, be humble. Think about other people's perspective. Uh, maybe that's your application for you. Maybe, maybe it's using some tools that are available to you to help build a logical bridge so then that you can help the gospel walk across that. You know, like I said, this many studies confirm the wisdom of living as God would have us to. And maybe like me, the one thing that I want to do, or a thing that I want to do, is continue to become a better storyteller. But stories not just for the sake of telling stories, but stories that illuminate the truth of God and, yeah. and the way that he's calling us into. So I think there's application for folks there. You know, everybody might, you know, each person listening may have something different they walk away with that they could put into practice so that they look more like Jesus. In the end, the encouragement is this, find a way to become a better bridge builder mm-hmm. because that's what we're called to do, build bridges for the sake of the gospel. Uh, communicating the message of Jesus clearly. That's good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you for sharing that. Pleasure. Thank you for writing this article and uh, just helping to um, really break that down for us today. I think that was good. I'm glad to do it. Awesome. So thank you all for joining us today. As always, In Practice Makes Faithful, we invite you to join us again next week as we dive into a new series. So mm-hmm. we're going to kind of return to our regular format That's right. for the month of December, and then uh, we'll take a little break when we get up to Christmas time. But we got a three-week series. That's right. Our Christmas series we'll dive into. So we invite you to join us again next week. And uh, until then, God bless.